I want to share just a few thoughts from these last couple of Sundays. I've had some, uh, if you've been here these last couple of weeks, we've had, uh, or even if you haven't, I'll share with you. It'll be a reminder for those of you who were here and uh, uh, informative for those of you who haven't been here. These last couple of Sundays, we've been kind of contrasting Judas and Peter. And there's a passage in John chapter 13 that seems to differentiate between the two of these guys as the only real difference between the two of them was that God chose one and not the other. One didn't eat his Wheaties. The other ate Twinkies. One didn't go to, um, I don't, I'm not going to put one side or the other, public school and the other private school or home school. Was, there was no real difference in there other than God's sovereign election. And that's a very underdeveloped teaching in uh, much of the contemporary church. And man, it really made for some difficult, um, I say difficult like it sounded like they were combative, not, not combative, but just to some difficult kind of how do, how do I, where do I put this? How do I handle this? What do I do with this? In the last couple of weeks, I've gotten emails and phone calls and have met with some folks. And um, I just want to share a few thoughts before we really climb into our John 13 message this morning. First of all, I think what I'm hearing from people is that it doesn't really make sense that God would choose one and not another. It seems almost arbitrary is one thing that I heard. And that, man, I totally understand that. I completely understand that. It, you know, why, why would God do that? If there wasn't something in Peter that wasn't in Judas, why would God do that? It would just kind of be capricious or arbitrary or nebulous. You know, what's he up to there? And... Um, I think where we've got to land is we've got to reckon with are we treating the word like what makes sense through the filter of what makes sense up here. And that's typically how we handle things. We do that all week long where we have a business decision or a purchase at home or a choice of what job to take. You're processing things through what makes sense and using your senses. That's where makes sense comes from. You're taking in your five senses and you're processing data and information but the Christian mind doesn't work by what makes sense what makes sense is developed from right here if we were driven by our senses then Abraham would have never left home and he certainly would have gone back home when he faced one trial after another he's told to go to a land and move in a land that he's going to own and possess and he'll be as numerous as the or his offering will be as numerous as the sand and the dust, and the stars, and he's looking around at an old lady for a wife who's barren. And it's like he's pulled up in front of this house that God's saying, that's going to be your house. And you look through the window, and there's somebody sitting eating dinner at the table. And their car is parked in the driveway. And you, oh, okay. If I'm going by what makes sense, I'm going home. <laughs> at least that's a known quantity for me. The Christian mind, faith does not work by what makes sense. It doesn't mean you take your mind and just trash it. But the entry point into the faith is faith. And faith is not via what makes sense. So I encourage you, as you deal with difficult truths like election and things like that, just don't, don't filter it through, well, this makes sense to me. Filter it through, what does this say? And this, through this, I will learn what makes sense. This develops what makes sense. And then the world, frankly, the gospel doesn't make sense to the world. In fact, the world says it's foolishness. The cross is foolishness. Grace doesn't make sense. 
So we are on a different plane. We have a different resource, and we are operating with a different uh, motive, a different fuel source. I think the thing that I've heard from people over the course of the week is that the difficult thing seems to be, where is choice in the matter? How does choice fit in? And I completely understand that concern. If you're dealing with Judas not being chosen and Peter being chosen and that the only real tangible difference between the two that resulted in one being chosen and one not is God's sovereign election, his decision. Where's choice in that? That's a great question. It's actually a question that I had to reckon with when I was preaching through John chapter 6. I realized as I was preaching through John chapter 6, again, verse by verse, no agenda, just moving on to the next verse. The only agenda is let the word be exposed. Uh, I, I got to John six forty four. No one comes to the Son except that the Father draws him. The word draw means drag. And I'm like, ooh, where does choice fit in there? And I realized that I had a big theology of choice that was based on what made sense to me. And I said, okay, God, I'm going to put that aside. If I'm going to preach this passage, I'll put that aside. So I started in Genesis and went all the way through the Bible to Revelation. And I looked for every passage that had to do with choosing, chosen, choice. (laughs) Um, What are the other? Chose. I almost forgot that one. I looked at every reference to that, cover to cover. Because I want to figure out, you know, is this theology of choice that I have, is it a real theology? Or is it something that I've conjured up from what makes sense? And what I found is example after example where God chooses man. God chooses a prophet. God chooses a king. God chooses a people. Example after example after example. And I found example after example where man chooses man. Man chooses a wife. Man chooses a running mate. Not political running, like... A pal. (laughs) Lots of examples. And I found one example that even hinted at man choosing God. And that was where Joshua was preaching to the nation of Israel. And he says, choose you this day whom you'll serve. And you've got to appreciate that he is preaching to an already chosen people. It's not a salvation issue. It's an obedience issue. It's the same context that I'm preaching on a Sunday morning to God's hopefully already chosen people. Already chosen people choose you today, again, yet again today, this week, today, whom you'll serve. It's the same thing. So my little theology of choice had to go in the trash can. It had to be destroyed. It had to be re-engineered by a timeless message that is anchored and I needed to tether to this rather than what makes sense to me. Because what makes sense to me now is not the same thing that made sense to me 20 years ago when I was a 20-year-old. I'm a different guy. I'm all over the map. But this thing is solid, man. (laughs) It doesn't move. So I want to anchor and tether to something that's static, immovable timeless because I may not even realize how much the western thinking has influenced me American way has influenced me the modern mind here's a way to reconcile that in some way God's complete and total and absolute sovereignty 
If there's a renegade, R.C. Sproul said, if there's a renegade molecule in the universe, then God is not sovereign. That's good. <laughs> if there's a renegade molecule in the universe, then God is not sovereign. So there, there, you have to embrace God's complete and absolute and utter sovereignty over all things along with man's responsibility and man's choice. How do they exist together? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I like to put a little tidy bow on it, put it in a box, and let you stick that in your pocket. Don't work that way. If I could understand God's ways completely, then either I would be God or He would not be. And thankfully, neither of those are true. So I'm okay with some mysteries. I urge you not try and package everything. Here's what I know. Man is not a robot, and man is without excuse. So how do you deal with all these passages that point us toward doing something? That's, that may, may be what you're thinking. All these passages cover to cover that say do something. Obey, follow, pursue, heed, care, love. How do you, what do you do with all those? I encourage you to eat them. It's like you eat the rest of it. Eat them and let them place you on a trajectory. What they will do, and I, I've used this imagery before of, of a GPS unit. and it's, such a, it's just a good image, so I'll keep using it until I find something better. A GPS unit works off multiple satellites. And it won't even give you a reading unless it's got at least three satellites. I don't know if this was the 1990s version that we used in the Marine Corps. I don't know what we use now, but... From what I understand now, it even works on more satellites. It can give you, like, down to the foot where you are on the earth. But it uses multiple satellites. And each of these satellites place you on a trajectory to where you are triangulated into a little tiny space. Bam! And you can feel secure that I'm standing where this tells me I'm standing. But it comes from multiple satellites. The Word is the same way. All right, let me, let me rephrase that. A GPS unit works, in some ways, like the Word. I don't want to make the word comparable to GPS unit. What you want to do with the word is you want to take in satellites. And the more contextually treated scripture that you take in, the more robust the reading. I'm standing where I think I'm standing. And the problem is our minds can't handle this because we've never been fed a lot of these satellites. We've never eaten them. We've done the read real fast technique over election, predestination, choosing. <laughs> read real fast technique. We get to them and go, and we move on to the place that we can understand. Or that doesn't make people unsettled. But if we dine on those, we take in those satellites, we find ourselves on a trajectory already from the doing passages. But then we bring in another trajectory of a sovereign God. A completely sovereign God where there are no renegade molecules. And then you're on that trajectory already of doing and then that crosses right here and you find yourself triangulated on something that's robust. And you take them both in. So yes, in many ways, you work as if it's up to you knowing and sleeping at night and thankful that it's not. Because if you're like me and you're doing, then you're failing too. And when you fail next to a holy God, you go, uh-oh, <laughs> something doesn't reconcile. All it takes is a bite of an apple to result in death. I've eaten more than an apple. So we work as if to, I've heard somebody say this so good. If you're familiar with 
Calvinist views and Arminian views. It's the first time I've ever even used those two words, I think, in five years of ministry in here. So there's no agendas in here. I don't want to make anybody afraid. There's no isms preached here. But taking those things together, if you've done your research on those, you work like an Arminian and sleep like a Calvinist. (laughs) That's good, man. I like that because you know that God is sovereign over all. Really, the way I've reconciled it is that we have a bunch of little bitty verbs that are fit within, encompassed within God's big election, sovereign, saving verb. And we have a bunch of little bitty tiny verbs that somehow fit within those big verbs. Here's a few examples. This may be the whole message. I don't know. I'm okay with that. We may just have a short Sunday and save next Sundays for, for next Sundays. Turn to Philippians. I'm going to share a few passages with you, four passages with you. I'm kind of in this place of now recognizing these passages for what they are, and I'm calling them means passages. This word means is not something that you should just automatically know. It's just a way of understanding how these little bitty verbs fit with these big verbs. Our little bitty verbs fit with his big verb. Okay, if you're confused right now, that's okay. Hang in there. I'm about to bring this all together. You're going to see this together. Okay, here's the first one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. There's another verb. Obey, right? We like that verb. We can see it. We understand it. We can be about obedience. Okay, that's good. Good stuff. And then it goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I bet that's a familiar passage to you. You work as if it's up to you, right? But thankfully, the verse doesn't end right there. If it ended right there, we would all be doomed to a lake of fire. The best we have is filthy rags. No one's righteous, no, not one. Born in sin and conceived in iniquity. Welcome to the hot pool. Thankfully, the the word, the passage continues. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So wait a second, who's working there? I thought I was working. I thought I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. But then it says, oh, for it's God who's working in me to will and to work. You see those fit together? That's means. That's working as if it's up to you, knowing that it's not. That's working like an Arminian, sleeping like a Calvinist. Here's another one on the same page. Chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is just dealing with salvation. He says, that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this, this salvation, this resurrection from the dead, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. You see that that little bitty verb? I press on. Man, I work as if it's up to me. I'm raging, clawing, scraping because it's Christ who's already made me his own. Oh, 
I love seeing those kind of passages together because they help me reconcile this whole thing. See, the reason this is so difficult is because we see Peter over here, we see Judas over here, and we think there's got to be a kernel of something in Peter that's not in Judas that makes it easier for us to reconcile. And I will tell you this, I'll promise you this, what that leads to is works-based salvation. Because it means that there's something of merit in Peter that there's not in Judas. So this grace that's extended to Peter is in some way deserved, and then it's not a free gift anymore. Do you understand that? A free gift means he doesn't deserve it any more than this joker deserves it. The ground is very level when it comes to Abraham, to Noah, to Ben, to Judas, to insert your name. It's very level in contrast to an infinitely holy God. It's super level. (laughs) And it's only God's sovereign election that differentiates between the two. But it's not capricious. And it's not arbitrary. And it's not because Peter said, where else are we going to go? He didn't earn something. There was not some kernel of something in him that rated God's election over this guy. We'll come back around to that. Two more passages. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. I'm going to help you see here in a moment how means fits with this whole thing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. It doesn't matter. God wrote it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 says, he's just been talking about our Sabbath. That's why I don't preach like a big high Sabbath message or a high Lord's Day message where one day is special, like you, like you shouldn't cut your grass on Sunday. If you feel like you shouldn't cut your grass on Sunday, that's fine, but I'm not going to preach that. I'm not going to go hunting on Sunday. That's what, when I was a kid, I couldn't go hunting on Sunday. Man. <laughs> See, our, our Sabbath is different. The Sabbath in the New Testament, it, it's not like the Sabbath has gone away. It's been fulfilled. And the way it's been fulfilled is now Christ is our Sabbath rest. Not on one day of the week. Every day. We're resting in Sabbath right now. Tomorrow on Monday, hopefully, We're resting in the Sabbath again. Every day is our Sabbath rest. Listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Another picture of means. Let us therefore strive. There's another little bitty verb. You see it? Strive. Claw. Scrape. Work as if it's up to you. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That Sabbath rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Therefore, let us strive to enter the rest of something that's already been achieved. (laughs) That's how they fit together. We work as if it's up to us, and we are working in response to and within a work that's already been completed. Sabbath, done. Sound effect. Hear it? I'll do it again. Done deal. Cross, empty tomb, Ascended Lord. One more passage. I just found this a couple days ago. I was coming across something for the love sermon that we may 
We may put postpone until next week. In First Timothy chapter four, verse ten. Page 992 of your pew Bible. I hope, I hope y'all are, maybe if y'all are here for the first time or first of a few times, I hope you hear pages turning because what we're doing is we're tuning into satellites. Man, we're, we're just satellite collectors. That's all we are. We're collecting satellites because we want to stand squarely in the truth. Verse 10, chapter 4, 1 Timothy. It says, for to this end, we toil and strive. More little bitty verbs. Put them down here with strive. Put them down here with workout. Put them down here with press on to lay hold of. Those little bitty verbs that we're about. These things that we're pursuing. To this end, Timothy, Paul writes, he says, to this end, Timothy, we, sto- we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. You see that? We toil and strive, and we even hope in something that's completely outside of ourselves. We fight to enter his rest. We kung fu fight to enter his rest. Fight to rest. Toil and strive to have hope in something that's a savior that's completely outside of us, a work that's completely outside of us. So how do these means passages connect with what we've been talking about, the sovereign election, this choice thing. We fight to stay at the table. We claw and we rage after faithfulness. We lock arm in arm with brothers and sisters in the faith. We're connected. We're, one, we're members of one another. While we trust that God is the true agent in keeping us here. While we trust that God's sovereign election and choice is at work. And the, here's the beauty, though. Here's where assurance comes from. Here's how you sleep at night. Knowing that God will not lose any of his own. Jesus prayed to him. He said, thank you. I haven't lost any of the ones you gave me. I haven't lost any of them. And he won't. That's where assurance comes from. Not from something written in the front of your Bible. That could have been a very special day. Not from an emotional experience. Not from a very sincere time. I hope that, I think that's what wrecked a lot of people last week is to see Judas as sincere. Homeboy was weeping. Well, we don't know he's weeping. We can imagine he's weeping. I would weep as I'm tying a noose with rough rope that I'm going to put around my neck as I'm standing on a ledge. I think I might cry. I think I might weep as I'm carrying a big heavy bag full of money and throwing it at Pharisees and Sadducees' feet saying, take this money back. That sounds like passion to me. Throwing it? That sounds very visceral, emotional, passionate. Wouldn't that qualify as faith? No, sir. That's worldly guilt, and it ends in death. The difference is, is for God's elect... You may experience those same elements of despair, but where does it turn you? To hope in Christ. Did you hear it right here? To hope in something that's completely outside of you. Our little verbs of pressing on, of working out, of choosing, of obeying, are embedded within his big sovereign verbs of saving and preserving and electing his own. 
the reason many of you are so troubled over it is because you've only been equipped with this trajectory. And now you're taking in a trajectory of a big sovereign God and you don't know what to do with it. I completely understand that. It's undoing, isn't it? Like, dude, I'm wrecked. This is disassembling everything I've ever known. That's cool if it's the Word doing that. Man, I think the thing that I enjoy about y'all and I enjoy about, about the people of God is that we're just cautious, man. We're like, hey, I want to make sure. I'm not about new truth for the sake of new truth. Because you can find new stuff anywhere. And I understand, man, y'all are like, hey, I, I, I want to, to know that this is the truth. Just see verse after verse after verse after satellite after satellite after satellite after satellite. After satellite. <laughs> Properly handled. And know that this thing will shape, will shape your mind, will renew your mind, and give you a view of what the real timeless anchor truth is. You don't have that in you automatically. I'm sorry. And your five senses can't develop it. It's something completely outside of you. This makes, this view, man, I'm telling you, this view makes for an especially humble and sweet view of God. I'm talking about a sweet view of God. There's no more. I never realized till now how unsettled I was then when I had this view of Jesus knocking on the door of my heart. Let me in, please. It's me, little Jesus. I look back now and I'm like, dude, that makes me sick. That's not my God. That's not my sovereign God with it. They're not even a renegade molecule in the universe. Who's God in that scenario? Let me in. Who's God? It's not God. It's the one with the door. Ooh, okay, Jesus, I might let you in. <laughs> if I feel up to it today. Who's God in that? The, the guy with the door. No thanks. I don't want that view of God. That's not God. But when you embrace His complete sovereignty, you can then embrace. Here's the way you reckon with cancer. You go, well, it's not an accident that I have cancer. I don't. I'm saying that when, if you deal with that, I don't think. I might. And my only resource would be that I've got this, hopefully, now this word-engineered view of a sovereign God that says there's not a renegade molecule in the universe. There's not a renegade cell in the universe. Except that God gives it permission. And that's the way God operates. That's the only way you can embrace cancer or loss or suffering, knowing that he is Lord over all things. What used to not make sense, now not only makes sense, now it's actually a treasure. That's how we can count it all joy, people of God. Because we know that God's up, up to something, and he's using us as an instrument of glory. And it might mean cancer as the tool. Viewing salvation through his complete and absolute and utter sovereignty puts him at the helm. And there's no more little bitty Jesus. Deep, deep, deep. And he's not arbitrary or capricious. He's not nebulous. I think I'll go with this guy. I don't like the look on this guy's face. I'll pass on him. I, this guy's got a nice hairdo. I'm going to go with him. God's not operating that way. What's driving his sovereign election of 
Peter over Judas is his plan of glory and his wisdom and his ageless, timeless design where he's about his own glory. That's the motive behind what he's doing. It's not just being arbitrary. We know from the word that he does not show favoritism. We know that. If we did, then we could understand that there might be something in Peter over Judas that he's playing favorites with Peter. But we know he doesn't show favoritism. His election and choice is ultimately a result of his wisdom and design in glorifying himself. Now, here's how important this is. I alluded to it earlier. I even said it. I don't know if you caught it, but I want you to get it. Here's how important this is. I'll tell you, three years ago or something like that, whenever I was preaching through John 6, man, I was reckon, reckoning with these truths and, and uh, seeing people just kind of unsettled over it. New young pastor. I'm a, I was unsettled over it too. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, why did you have to give me John 6, 44? Couldn't we have just skipped to 45? As I'm having to deal with things like that, what it did for me, I don't even remember where I was going with that. I could try and cover it up with some sort of transition, but I just have nothing for you this morning. Here's how important this is. Let's go back. Let's start back. Maybe I'll find that rabbit again. Here's how important this is. Oh, yeah. It used to be kind of a peripheral issue for Crosspoint. It really did. Because we didn't want to have an agenda. And people could accuse you of being an ist or an ism or preaching an ism. And, man, I just don't care about that anymore. I'm just going to preach it as it, as it is. Whatever you, people want to call us, I don't care, man. I just want us to be biblicists. <coughs> so I used to be a little bit apologetic about this, this, this big sovereign God. Mm, knowing that somebody will be like, it's my first Sunday and my last Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> man, who doesn't want their church to grow, right? That's very human. But now, this is, a, this is a central thing. It's not a peripheral issue anymore. It's a central issue because here's what's at stake. Here's what happens. If you put something in Peter that's not in Judas, if there's a little bitty kernel of faith, little bitty kernel of beauty, of anything, I don't know, kernel of something in Peter that's not in Judas then God does show favoritism. And salvation is based on works. With faith being the ultimate work, the saving work. But my Bible, my Bible says that even faith isn't of yourself. It's a gift of God. We can't even muster the faith. We got scales over our eyes. We have this stone heart that has to be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. Does that sound familiar? It's all over our Bibles. God chose Israel not because they were special or because they were large in number. <laughs> he chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. If Peter has something in him that Judas doesn't have, then Peter has room to boast. And Peter doesn't, and Judas doesn't, because Judas doesn't have it. 
But that's why if, if Israel has something that the other nations don't have, then Israel has room to boast. Maybe they did. Maybe they are. But if you see the ground as especially level, if you see the ground especially level and you pray Godward like a tax collector and not like a Pharisee, but like a tax collector, if you see the ground as especially level and you put the saving work on God completely, then you have no room for boasting either other than boasting in the cross and boasting on God and boasting on His wisdom (laughs) and just being amazed by grace that it should reach so low to grab a wretch like you and me, fellow tax collectors. And then, I think then, you can enjoy grace and mercy as the free gifts that they really are. They're unearned and undeserved. That's going to be our sermon this morning. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach from John chapter 13. Verses 31 through 35. And um, we'll see some more things about um, assurance. Bible-informed assurance of what it is. You can see a commandment that's new and challenging. You can see a people that are aromatic and bright and salty and otherworldly. And since you know where I'm going, you can read ahead and study. Imagine that. Actually coming prepared on a Sunday. It's cool. It's not against the rules. John chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. This morning, what we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to sing and we're going to worship in song. I'll share our passage, our uh, passage that I'm going to preach from next week. I'll just read it, and then we'll move right into our Lord's Supper. Before we do that, I want to encourage you, as we take the supper together this morning, to take it rightly. Ultimately, none of us has, has room to be at this table. It's by grace and mercy that we are at this table. But I urge you, by grace and mercy and faith and prayer and daily and hourly repentance to reckon with God so that you can suffer rightly. If you're not in fellowship with God through the finished work of Christ, if you're not believing on Christ as that agent, that capital A agent, that uh, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the author and perfecter of our faith, if you're not believing on Him as the agent, the doer, the big verb doer, man, I... I have a tough time saying take this supper. I think that's faith. So if you're believing on him as a big verb doer, then the next step, I think, is to be repentant in those little verbs. If you've been unfaithful in some little verbs, you've been disobedient in some little verbs, then now's the time 
to reckon with that. Maybe some of y'all are crossways with each other. Husbands and wives. I don't know why the devil's so busy on Sunday mornings. He likes to get a husband and wife crossways before they come sit before the living God, God's people. Maybe you need to whisper in each other's ear, I am so sorry. I want to take this up rightly. So let's reconcile with each other. Let's reconcile with God in prayer in these next few minutes. And then let's sup together. I'm going to read our passage from John chapter 13. And then I'll pray. And then we'll go right into our supper. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me pray. Lord, I, first of all, I just pray that as a people that you'll find us thinking rightly, reasoning rightly, that what makes sense for us is what is developed from this word. Lord, I pray that as lovingly and as gently and as compassionately as possible that we can be people of truth and that we can preach it. I pray for a gentleness in my preaching that's passionate yet gentle yet absolutely true. Whatever violence it does to me, whatever violence it does to what people think of me, whatever violence it does what people think, to our, think of our church, that people will say those people are eating that book and those people are developing a view of a big, big, huge God and a little bitty tiny man. Lord, I pray that we will be found faithful in those respects, in those regards, that we are dining on this book, that this book is shaping what we believe, what we understand, that it is the fuel for my preaching, that is the fuel for our teachers teaching, that it's the fuel for our shepherds engaging their families week by week. Lord, I pray that we are taking in all the satellites of your sweet redemptive plan. That we are taking in the full gamut of your character traits. Your facets of your mysterious, wonderful, complex personality. And I pray that we are embracing every part of it. I pray that it makes, creates in us just a lowliness a gentleness, a love, a passion, a zeal, a view of eternity that no man can muster, but they can only be given and provided by the Holy Spirit where you can only get the glory for it. 
Lord, I, I can say with everything in me, and I know there are people in this room that can say too, who have a, hopefully, a growing view of your sovereignty, that we are thankful that you are the Savior through and through. <laughs> with everything in me, I'm thankful that you are the Savior through and through, because I know my failings. The more time I spend in your book, the more I see my ugliness, the more I see my motives, the more I see my roller coaster love and affection for people. more and more time I spend in this book, the more and more level the ground is. And the more and more amazed I am by grace. Lord, I with this people this morning, we thank you so much for being the Savior through and through. We thank you that in your wisdom and in your design, that you will not lose any of your own. That you will preserve your people. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that we will sup rightly. I pray for anyone in this room that is not in fellowship with you through the finished work of Christ, that they will cast themselves headlong at the feet of Jesus and the finished work of the cross, and they will recognize and testify to and surrender to a work completely outside of themselves. And that you'll quicken them from death to life this morning. And that as they sup, that they will sup rightly as a new believer. Lord, ask for those current believers who are unrepentant. and pray that you will just call to mind areas that we need to be um, forthright about. Maybe with our brother. Maybe with you. Maybe both. And we'll ask forgiveness and we'll be reconciled. Lord, pray that you will find us supping rightly this morning. Thankful that we are remembering a cross that's worth remembering. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Share a passage from Luke as we prepare to pass out the bread. This is a parallel passage of where we've been in John chapter 13. It's the very night. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined. At table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. (laughs) 